0: morning. If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 5. We continue this morning in our studies through the gospel of Luke. Uh, And last time that we were in Luke, you'll remember we covered the story of uh, Jesus cleansing a leper. Uh, A leper comes to him, and remember lepers are not supposed to be in the cities, They were supposed to be completely isolated. Uh, They were supposed to be uh, to themselves, but this man was desperate. He believed that Jesus could heal him. Uh, Behold, here comes a man full of leprosy. And Jesus, in compassion and mercy, uh, touches the leper, even though lepers are not supposed to be touched. But instead of Jesus becoming unclean as a result, behold, uh, Jesus makes the leper clean. And it says immediately the leprosy left him. Lepers aren't supposed to be healed, but this leper is completely healed from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And this is not only a miracle that clearly demonstrates yet again that Jesus is the Messiah. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard, that lepers are cleansed. But it's also a miracle that symbolizes the greater work that Christ came to do. to seek and save the lost. A leprosy in its uncleanness, uh, in its separation from God, and how it leaves the person hopeless and helpless. Well, it's a powerful picture of our sin, how our sin makes us unclean, how our sin separates us from a holy God, how our sin leaves us hopeless and helpless. But just like Jesus in his compassion cleanses this man, I will be clean So the blood of Jesus, shed for us in love and compassion, cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. And so this leper is cleansed. But remember, there's a little bit more to the story that we didn't get to last time. And so we come back this morning to this narrative to finish it off. And so let me start by reading the entire story. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Uh, But our focus this morning is going to be particularly on verses 15 and 16. And so this is the word that God has for you this morning. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So here's a two-point outline to just kind of help us organize our thoughts for these last two verses. Uh, We have Jesus' popularity in verse 15, and we have Jesus' prayer in verse 16, right? Jesus' popularity, Jesus' prayer. Uh, But before we go any further, let's begin with a prayer of our own that we might ask God to help us in this time. Father, it is so good for your people to be together Our hearts have been warmed and and filled as we have sung together and prayed together and read your word together. Now, as we turn to the preaching of your word, we especially ask for your help, uh, for truly the change that comes in your people from your word is something that we cannot just bring about in our own strength. We confess that our hearts are prone to loving idols and putting ourselves and our own desires in your place, and so... Please help us to see from your word, your glory, and your majesty that we might worship you rightly. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be at work in us, and to expose our sin, to direct our hearts to Christ and the refuge that he alone provides, and to allow us by grace to make every effort in Christlikeness. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Point number one, Jesus' popularity. Look at verse 15. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So Jesus heals the leper. The leper is immediately cured. There's not a, a spot on his skin. There's not a sore or a wound or a lesion. Like, he is completely healed. But right after he heals him, Jesus tells the man, look at verse 14, don't tell anyone about it. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Go straight to the priest. And we talked last time about that process. The inspections and the sacrifices and all that's involved and laid out for us in Leviticus chapter 14. Like once the leper does all of that, he'd be declared clean and he could rejoin society. Now we don't know exactly why Jesus tells him to tell no one. Like, why wasn't the leper allowed to tell anybody? Now, some people think it's so that the priest examining the leper would be able to, like, objectively analyze the case in front of him right, without any biases as, uh, that he might have, uh, that it was Jesus who performed this miracle. Right? Just show up. Right? Don't tell anybody anything. Nobody knows anything. Let the priest examine you based on the merits of your case, and he'll declare you clean. It's possible. But I think there's a little more to it than that. And we have a major clue as to what's going on here from just looking at other accounts in the Gospels in which Jesus says something along the same lines, something similar. For example, he heals this deaf and mute man in Mark chapter 7 verse 36. And it says, Jesus charged them to tell no one. Hmm. And after he heals the blind man at Bethsaida, Mark 8:26, he sent him to his home saying, "Do not even enter the village." Presumably from to keep the news from spreading there. And after he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, that's in Luke chapter 8, her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And so you see that in those cases, the the vow of silence has nothing to do with leprosy, right? It has nothing to do with the ritual in Leviticus chapter 14. Uh, It's got nothing to do with a declaration of cleanliness by a priest. Jesus gives basically the same instruction that he gives to the leper in other healings as well. So what's going on here? Well, it's likely because Jesus knows what would happen if word got out about his miracles. People would become so focused on the miracles, right? So drawn to the healings that the teaching, which is what Jesus really came to do, right? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That teaching would become secondary and would become overlooked in the eyes of the people. And people would become so focused on the miracles and the healings, the temporal benefits of having Jesus around that they would see him with earthly eyes, even though he came to establish a spiritual kingdom. That is, they would see him as someone who could provide for all of their earthly needs, food and health and a physical provision, and as a result, they would overlook their real need, their spiritual need, their soul's need. I think we see that most clearly in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, right after he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. This is one of the greatest and most powerful demonstrations of his miraculous power to provide for man's earthly needs. Uh, Just look at what happens. John 6 verses 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people saw Jesus, one who could create bread, right? One who could heal the sick, one who could cure all of their diseases. And they think to themselves, he is going to be a great earthly king. We are never going to be hungry again. We are never going to be sick again. We will never suffer physically again on those Romans. Those Romans who have oppressed us, who rule over us. He could just overthrow those Romans just like that. But that, of course, is not the kind of king he came to be. And it's not just in John that we see this tension, although that incident recorded by John is perhaps the most powerful example Uh, We see it also in our gospel. Uh, just look back to the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 42. When it was day, uh, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Like, he's just healed all their diseases. He's cast out all their demons. So so the people of Capernaum, uh, they want to keep Jesus there. Remember Peter's words, right? Everybody's looking for you. But he said to them, next verse, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I was not sent for the purpose of being your miracle healer and your healer. I was sent for the purpose of preaching the kingdom of God. To both declare and make a way for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, To live a perfect life to die in the place of sinners and to be raised again, right? So that sinners like you and I might be reconciled to a holy God. That we might have our sins forgiven, that uh, the perfect Son of God dies in our place and gives us his righteousness so that we might be made children of God. The gospel is of first importance. The gospel that stands to save every sinner in this room today, right? It's that gospel for which he came. Everything else is secondary to that primary mission. And so, Mr. Leper, tell no one. Do not tell anyone. But the man disobeys. And so even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And here's a case where Mark, the Gospel of Mark, kind of gives us an insight in his gospel that Luke chooses to leave out. Uh, And so Mark's commenting on the same exact story, and look at what he says, uh, verses 43 and following. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. That's the same as Luke. But now look at this additional detail that Mark provides. But he went out, the leper went out, After being told not to say anything, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus gives a clear command and the man clearly disobeys. Let's think about that. Because maybe there's a part of us that's I don't know, almost tempted to, to give this man the benefit of the doubt. I mean, this man was a leper, right? which meant not only all the physical suffering, but also it meant that he was, he was socially isolated. He was separated from his family and his friends. He, he couldn't be a productive member of society. He couldn't even go to worship services. Right? It was the disease that completely defined his life through its uncleanness. Right? It was like the most miserable of existences back then. And now for the first time in who knows how long, right, he is clean. He is freed from this bondage that he'd been under. And so basically after having no social contact for perhaps years, like how could he not tell anyone and everyone who would listen? And so there's maybe a part of us that says, yeah, I I, I get it. Like I get why he disobeyed the Lord, Maybe he even thought he knew better than Jesus. Yeah, I know Jesus told me not to say anything, but he's just being humble. Everybody needs to know about this. He needs to be recognized for this. But here's the thing, and let me try to state this as plainly as I possibly can. It is never okay to disobey the Lord. And so we should never attempt to, like, rationalize or justify our sin or this ex-leper sin by chalking it up to some set of circumstances that make it okay to flagrantly disobey God. I I was tired and it was late at night and that's why I said those things. Oh, you don't understand how bad my marriage is. That's why I did those things. Well, if you only knew how horribly that person treated me, well, that's why I continue to harbor this bitterness and resentment against them. Oh, that's just how I was raised. My parents were like that. That's just my personality. That's just how I am. That's why I'm angry, harsh, judgmental, lazy, just fill in the blank with whatever sin Oh, he was just enthusiastic and excited about being healed from his leprosy. That's why he disobeyed Jesus. You'll remember a few weeks ago we looked at the story of Peter and uh, the miraculous catch of fish. Uh, There we focused on Peter's obedience. Peter obeyed even though he might have thought he knew better. Uh, But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Well, here we see the, the flip side. Peter had a million reasons why he might have disobeyed. Like, I'm the fisherman here. Uh, we've been out here all night. These nets, right? These are, these are nighttime nets, not daytime nets. We just finished cleaning our nets and we just want to go home. Peter had a million reasons why he might have disobeyed, but he obeyed Jesus anyway. But on the other hand, We've got this leper. He also has a million reasons why he wants to talk to people about what just happened to him. But instead of saying, like Peter, but because you say so, I will stay quiet, he disobeys. He puts his circumstances and his desires and his feelings above God's word, above the direct command of Jesus. Jesus. There's a similar story in the Old Testament. You might remember the story of King Saul. Goes against the plain command of God instead of destroying the plunder of the Amalekites. Right? He keeps the best portions for himself and for his men. And his rationalization, his excuse, well, we were going to use them to sacrifice to the Lord. But you remember God's response. behold, To obey is better than sacrifice. Friends, there are no excuses, no rationalizations, no attenuating circumstances that make it okay for us to sin, for us to disobey the clear commands of Jesus. Like, to obey is better than any potential justification that we can think of. Now, we don't have Jesus speaking to us directly like this leper did. We don't have God speaking directly to us through a prophet like King Saul did. But friends, we do have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, the very word of God, the scriptures. This is just to bring it into our context. There are no excuses, no rationalizations, no attenuating circumstances that make it okay for us to disobey the clear commands of Scripture. And so if you, this morning, if you find yourself in a sin, an ongoing sin, a sinful relationship, a sinful habit, a sinful pattern, maybe a sin that you've been cherishing in your heart, something in your life that you know goes against the plain commands of Scripture— what you need to do is to repent. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to turn towards God. You need to look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you need to do away with these rationalizations that you've been making in your head as to why your sin should be justified. Knowing that there's no valid reason, no matter how well we might rationalize it in our heads, There is no valid reason for you, as a child of God, to disobey him. You remember how this leper referred to Jesus in the passage we covered last week? Lord, a curios, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Well, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? We don't know anything else about this ex-leper. What we do know is that his disobedience had consequences. Like as a result of his blabbing, and look at Mark one forty-five again. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Okay, so Mark one forty-five. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, right? Hold that verse in mind, and now look at Jesus' self-stated mission in Luke 4.43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns. So you see that. Jesus must preach the gospel to the other towns, like he was sent for that purpose, but now because of the leper, it's awful hard for him to enter towns, It's not like the leper's disobedience is going to, like, derail or nullify or uh, cause the plans and purposes of God to fail. Uh, Jesus is still going to accomplish what Jesus is going to accomplish. But you can see how the leper's disobedience went directly against the plans and purposes of God. Making it harder for Jesus to preach the good news of the kingdom to these towns. Jesus is going to keep preaching. He's going to keep doing the will of God, right? No matter how crowded it gets. And evidence of that is in the very next story. Just kind of scan your eyes down the page. Uh, The whole premise of the story of the paralytic on the mat is that it's so crowded around Jesus that this guy's friends have to lower him in from the roof. Look, Look at verse 17. People had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And so one way or another... Right? Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. But the man's disobedience doesn't help. And friends, that's, that's a frightening and terrible place to be, is it not? Right? Finding your actions in direct opposition to the plans and purpose of God. But that's exactly where willful disobedience will leave us. Point number one Jesus' popularity, right? Jesus' popularity, at least as a miracle worker and a healer, that's not something that he sought, but it was brought about more and more because of this leper's disobedience. Which brings us to point number two, Jesus' prayer. Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Several things I want you to notice from uh, this short verse. Uh, First, I want you to notice that Jesus prayed. The verse tells us he would pray. Uh, Throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaches his disciples a lot about prayer. When you pray, pray then like this. Uh, He's going to give them parables about prayer. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. But it's not just that he teaches them to pray or about prayer. It's also that he prays himself. And he prays himself a lot. Uh, If I were to ask you to just, like, make a list of the things that characterizes, like, Jesus' earthly ministry— I think most of us would list a lot of his miracles and a lot of his teachings and a lot of his parables before we ever got to the simple truth that Jesus prayed. But, uh, and Luke, of all four gospel writers, like especially emphasizes and highlights this for us, Jesus was like always praying. Back in Luke chapter 3, right, you remember the story of his baptism. What was he doing during his baptism? Luke 3.21, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. And right as he's about to select the twelve apostles, Luke 6.12, what does Jesus do right beforehand? In these days, Luke 6.12, he went out to the mountain to pray. And he continued in prayer all night to God. Remember, it's not just like Jesus doesn't have to sleep or something like that. No, he gets tired and he gets sleepy just like the rest of us do. But sometimes the gospels tell us that he rose early in the morning, sometimes the gospel tell us that he stayed up all night. Uh, what was so urgent? What was so important that he would gladly sacrifice sleep like that? Prayer. How about right before Jesus' confession? Luke 9:18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And I love that description, by the way. Even when the disciples were with him, he's praying alone. Even with all the people around him, it's just him and his father. A little later in the chapter, Luke 9, 28, this is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. What was he doing? Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Keep the party going here. The night before his death, Gethsemane, what's he doing? And being in agony, Luke 22, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then, of course, even on the cross, what is he doing? And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a prayer. Luke clearly presents Jesus as a man who truly prayed without ceasing. But now you may be wondering, well, wait a minute! If Jesus is God, why is Jesus praying? Well, if you think about it, prayer is at its most basic and fundamental level, uh, just speaking with God, right? It's a it's a child talking with his father, and so that's why we pray, "Our Father in Heaven." Well, he is the perfect son. He is the true son of God. How much more integral is prayer to who he is, right? His very person, just communing with his father. And so in his prayer, Jesus the son is uh, in love, communing with God the father. He loves the father perfectly and prayer is just one expression or, or channeling of that love. And so for if, no, if there's no other reason, Right? That's why Jesus prayed, because he is the perfect son, and he is praying to his father. But friends, consider that he also prayed because he needed to, right? in reliance to the father, because he did nothing in his own strength. In his incarnation, in his humanity, in his ministry on earth, in his voluntary condescension, Jesus does not just draw on his divinity to face all the trials and all the sufferings that he faces. He faces them in his humanity. And so he humbly relies upon the Father's will, right? The Father's direction, the Spirit's empowering, right? That's why Jesus prays so often. And we see that result even in the very next verse, right? In our passage, right? So we praise in verse 16. What does it say about Jesus in verse 17? The power of the Lord was with him to heal. So first, maybe this is an unspectacular observation, but it's an important one nonetheless, right? This verse shows us that Jesus prayed. As simple as that truth might be, it is one we ought not to overlook, Second, Jesus would go to desolate places, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Here we have to remember the demands on Jesus. Everyone is looking for you, right? Like lines are forming out the door for healings, for exorcisms, like crowds are everywhere. And it's not that You can't pray with people around you, right? We saw that verse earlier, right? As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. But Jesus knew the value of desolate places, right? Places where he could go and be alone with his father. Third, he prayed continually. This verse shows us that he prayed continually. The the tenses of both of those verbs in the Greek, uh, withdraw and pray, uh, they indicate continual action, and so this verse is not saying, like, well, there was this one time that Jesus withdrew and prayed. This is more like Jesus would continually withdraw and continually pray. Again, praying without ceasing. But fourth, and most importantly, in the greater context of this passage, Luke chapter 5, I want you to see the connection between points number one and two. The connection between his popularity And his prayer. Because it's in light of his popularity that he prays. I think that's the key to understanding these verses. Like he has just had a really successful string of healings and and miracles, right? Culminating in this leper being healed. And so as a result, the report about him goes abroad, right? He is immensely popular. Great crowds are gathering around him. He is in high demand, And so at this point, like, everybody loves Jesus. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Instead of moving towards the fame and towards the acclaim and towards the adoration, he would deliberately move away. He would withdraw away from the crowds, away from their love. And so this isn't a verse so much about, like, Jesus' daily devotions, although I'm sure he did, right, regularly, daily, pray and commune with the Father. If it's a verse just about his daily prayer life, I mean, Luke could have included it anywhere. But Luke's specific placement of this verse here, his emphasis on how Jesus specifically combats the temptations and the difficulties and the challenges that come from his popularity with prayer is shown in his placement of this verse. Well, what kind of temptations? Well, temptations like giving in to the tyranny of the urgent, right? I mean, you think about the demands of life and ministry. Maybe you think you have it tough. Nobody was ever in more demand than Jesus. And so he's got this temptation to give everyone what they want, right? To give everybody who asks the time and energy that they demand, and unlike us, right, when people ask us for things, we'll try our best, but we can't necessarily guarantee anything. Jesus healed everyone who came to him. And so he's got this temptation to give everybody what they want, and in the process, ignore his relationship with and reliance on the Father and the Spirit. But by praying, by praying, he shows his continual desire To commune with them, his dependence upon them. And so, in light of pressures to prioritize men over God, he withdrew to desolate places and prayed. Then there's also the related temptation to become what the people wanted him to become. You remember back at the beginning of chapter 4, one of the ways in which the devil tempted him was to offer him a kingdom. To you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. You see, basically this popularity from the masses, it, it's a recapitulation of the same temptation. Right? You can be our king. We will worship you and we will adore you if you will just be our miracle worker and our healer. But just like the temptation that Satan offered that would be a kingdom apart from the Father's will and thus not what Jesus came for. And so in light of the pressures to become for the people what the people wanted him to be, he withdrew to desolate places and prayed. In addition to those temptations that come from popularity, well, there's also these Challenges and trials that are going to arise because of his popularity, uh, namely, opposition. Jesus knew that as he grew more popular, uh, the opposition was inevitable, right? That his popularity was necessarily going to lead to conflict because who he was and what he came to do was in direct conflict with who the Pharisees were and what they were all about. So we're going to see that develop more fully in the narratives to come, even starting next week. And so in the face of this impending conflict, due to his popularity, Jesus withdrew to desolate places and prayed. And so whether it's the temptation to give in to the tyranny of the urgent, uh, the temptation to be for the people what they wanted him to become, or the challenges that are just going to arise from opposition with all that was facing him because of his popularity, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Again, this is not a verse about Jesus' daily devotions as much as it is a verse about how he managed messianic expectations, how he kept his will aligned perfectly with the Father in spite of much pressure to go in the other direction. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. One of the ways that that manifested itself most clearly throughout Jesus' life, and one of the driving forces that allowed that statement to continue to remain true throughout his life, was his constant, continual prayer life. Point number two, Jesus' prayer. Let me close with three quick application points for us. So, Jesus was popular and Jesus prayed. So what? Right, like, what's that got to do with me and you? Right, how should we then live? Application point number one is to beware of popularity. Beware of popularity. Now, I am not saying that having lots of friends is bad. I am not saying that you should purposely be annoying to be as unpopular as you possibly can be. I'm not saying that if you are popular, then it's necessarily because you're compromising in God's eyes. That's true in some cases. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But none of that is my point here. My point here is that one particularly dangerous snare of popularity, one particularly dangerous snare of being liked by others, well-regarded by others, is that that can become our source of strength and identity and purpose, which then in turn leads us to forget about God. And one unavoidable symptom, like necessary symptom of that, would be a non-existent prayer life. I mean, why would I spend time communing with a God I can't see and whose love for me is invisible when I can spend time pleasing people who I can see and whose love for me is visible? Oh, but that is, friends, a a short-sighted way to think. Uh, to value men's approbation and applause over God's, or to value relationships uh, which are uh, fallible uh, with finite people over our relationship with the glorious and infinite God. You follow that path long enough and you'll find yourself gaining the whole world and in the process forfeiting your soul. Jesus' example Nobody was more popular than he was. Nobody was, at least at this point in his ministry, more well-liked than he was. But nobody valued God's will over the people's will. Nobody valued doing what pleased God over doing what pleased man. Nobody valued a life of prayer over a life of popularity more than Jesus. And so should we not, as his disciples, beware of snares of popularity ourselves. Application point number one, beware of popularity. Application point number two, pray because you're busy. Pray because you're busy. Uh, many of you will be familiar with uh, the famous John Piper quote. I love this. A uh, quote, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove on the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Which, ironically enough, he posted on Twitter. Now, I I agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. But I also think this narrative is proof enough. Like, we don't even need Twitter or Facebook to testify against us. Uh, Prayerlessness is not from a lack of time, because if anybody in the history of the universe was too busy to pray who struggled from a lack of time. Surely it was Jesus. Like, I think we lose track of this because the gospel writers will take literally hundreds and thousands of healings and meetings and conversations and encounters and just kind of, like, distill them into one verse. But just think about what it means when it says, like, look at Luke 4.40. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Right? That's just one verse in our Bibles. But just think about all that went into that. That's hours upon hours, days upon days. Everyone is coming to see him. And he spends the time, he doesn't just wave his hands over the masses he touches and ministers to each and every soul. Jesus was incredibly busy. He was always working, he was always doing the will of the Father. But he also knew the busier you are, the more you need to pray. The more you need to draw, withdraw to desolate places and pray. one of the paradoxes, I think, of our Christian life. Like the less time we have to pray, the more we actually need to pray. Because the less time we have to pray, the busier we are in our life, and our ministry, and our family, and whatever it is. The more temptations that we face, the more weary and, and prone to discouragement we'll be. Uh, the more susceptible we'll be to compromise because of our stress or our tiredness or our busyness. Application point number two, don't just pray in spite of your busyness. Uh, Pray precisely because you are busy. Uh, Hear this quote. We live in hurrying, bustling times. The excitement of daily business And constant engagements keeps many men in a perpetual whirl and entails great peril on souls. You know who wrote that? J.C. Ryle. He lived in the 1800s. Like, what do you mean hurrying, bustling times? The the man was walking around on a a horse and carriage. He didn't have an iPhone. He has no idea what we're facing. While all the more reason for us to listen carefully because as true as this was in his day... It's even more true, I think, of us. Rao continues, quote, The neglect of this habit of withdrawing occasionally from worldly business is the probable cause of many an inconsistency or backsliding which brings scandal on the cause of Christ. The more work we have to do, the more we ought to imitate our master. If he, in the midst of his abundant labors found time to retire from the world occasionally, then how much more should we? If the master found the practice necessary, then it must surely be a thousand times more necessary for his disciples. Application point number two, pray because you are busy. Application point number three, and we'll close with this, is to look to Christ. Look to Christ. Here's the thing, and I know this from personal experience. Right? Any sermon on prayer inevitably leaves like even the most committed Christians feeling like we're really falling short. Right? Like, like rare is the Christian who truly feels satisfied and content with his prayer life. As Robert Murray McShane once said, uh, "If you want to humble Christians, ask about their prayer lives." And so that's a good thing in one sense. Right? It's a good thing if this sermon spurs us on to pray more often and to pray more diligently and to pray more and more in the, the midst of our busyness. But at the same time, dear Christian, don't let your mediocre prayer life drive you to despair. It's like with anything that you're convicted of in a sermon. Right? First and foremost, you need to repent, but you also very much need to look to Christ. Christ. All right, look to Christ who died for all of your sin, including your sin of prayerlessness, including your sin of being cold towards the things of God, including your sin of being too busy to pray. All right, look to Christ who, uh, even as you often give in to the temptation to seek the approval of man over the approval of your Father, and that reflects itself in your prayer life, well, look to Christ who always did the will of the Father, Perfectly. Look to Christ, whose righteousness, even as exampled and expressed in his perfect prayer life, his perfect prioritizations, well, that righteousness, dear friends, if you have trusted in Christ, that righteousness is yours. So application point number three, dear church, Let us strive, right? Let us strive to pray more, to pray more consistently, to pray more like our Savior, but let us not forget to look to Christ, to look to his gospel. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. That you have enabled sinners like us through the mediating work of your Son to approach your throne. That we might speak with you. That we might share our burdens with you, uh, Lord, that we might look to you for communion and fellowship. Father, we pray that we as a church, uh, we as individual believers, would become stronger prayers. Lord, we pray that we as believers, as individual Christians, would more zealously uh, look to Christ and cling to him. For he indeed does do all things well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.